Lord, we know it's a gift to be able to gather here today. Uh, We're told in Hebrews that we are not to neglect meeting together, but instead we are to meet together that we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, that we might be able to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. And so, Father, we pray that that's exactly what would happen today, that we would um, come together, that we would spur one another on towards love and good deeds, that we would be encouraged to be here, and ultimately that we'd know more about your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as always, we pray that you just bless this time as we study your word. We pray that we would be faithful to listen intently, and ultimately that you would move, that your spirit would do a mighty work in this congregation today. God, would you be gracious to us? Would you allow us to have ears to hear? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So it happened a little over a year ago now. It was December 5th of 2013. American Ronnie Smith was gunned down and killed in the streets of Benghazi, Libya, out for a morning jog. No one to this day has claimed responsibility for the killings, although it's largely believed that Islamic militant groups were somehow behind Smith's death. Smith and his family, his wife Anita and young son Hosea, had moved to Libya in 2012, just a year and a half before his death, so that Smith could teach chemistry at the international school in Benghazi. More than that, though, they had moved to Libya because they wanted to be a blessing to the Libyan people. From everything I can read, their main purpose was that they wanted to make sure that Christ was known. Ronnie and his wife were longtime members of Austin Stone Community Church in Austin, Texas. And this was their passion. They loved the people of Libya, but more than that, they loved Christ. And the reason they moved to Libya is because they wanted the people of Libya to know the joy of following Christ. You know, it's hard for me, even a year later, to think about Ronnie Smith's death and not be emotionally affected. The story resonated with me when it happened, and it still resonates with me now a year later. Perhaps it resonates with me because we have friends at that church in Austin, Texas. In fact, we have friends who are heavily involved in missions there, and I have no doubt that they played a role in sending Ronnie to Libya. And so for that reason, the story resonates with me. It also resonates with me because Ronnie was my age. We were born in the same year. And so when I think of his story, I think of my own life. And in particular, I think this story resonates with me because, of I, because I think of his wife and his son. The fact that his son will grow up and never know his father, it grieves me. It grieves me that he will never know his dad. In many ways, this is an incredibly tragic story. But in other ways, it's an incredibly beautiful story. It's beautiful because Ronnie had such a love for the people of Libya and such a love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's also beautiful because of what happened after Ronnie's death. You see, something happened after Ronnie died that changed the entire narrative surrounding his death. In fact, today, if you were to go and Google Ronnie Smith Libya, the first story that pops up has nothing to do with his death and has nothing to do with the search for his killers. Instead, it's related to his wife and her forgiveness of the people who murdered her husband. Just two weeks after Ronnie was killed, Anita Smith, his wife, penned an open letter to the people of Libya. In part, it says this. I'll just read excerpts of it here. My husband and best friend Ronnie Smith loved the Libyan people. For more than a year, Ronnie served as a chemistry teacher in a school in Benghazi, and he would gladly have given more years to Libya if unknown gunmen had not cut his life short on December 5, 2013. Friends and family from home were concerned about our safety, as were some of you. We talked about this more times than I can count, but we stayed because we believed the Libyan people were worth the risk. Even knowing what I know now, I have no doubt that we would both make the same decision all over again. 
Ronnie loved you all so much, especially as students. He loved to joke with you, tell stories about you, help you with your lives, and challenge you to be all that you could be. He did his best, best to live out his faith humbly and respectfully within a community of people with a different faith. And this is the line that made all of the attention in the media. She said this to his attackers, I love you and I forgive you. This actually, it seems, if you were to do just a quick search, this seems to be the thing that resonates the most with the story of Ronnie Smith. When people think about his death, they don't think so much about what happened to him, but they think about his wife's forgiveness. And I don't think that's surprising, actually. I don't think it's surprising that people would be deeply and profoundly moved by forgiveness. Because few things in life are as powerful and as beautiful as a story of forgiveness. And yet, I would argue, few things are more difficult than forgiveness also. In fact, I think the reason why we resonate with stories of forgiveness, why we hear a story like this where a woman is able to forgive the killers of her husband and it moves us is because we understand how difficult and rare true forgiveness is. And so it's with that background that we turn our attention to this passage in Matthew 18. For what it's worth, I think that this is one of the most powerful and memorable of all of Jesus' parables. I think they're all powerful and all memorable in their own way, but this one has always stuck with me. And I think it's one of the most challenging, it's one of the most convicting. Now the story actually opens up not with the parable itself, but rather with a conversation between Peter and Jesus. That's where we pick up the story in verse 21 of Matthew 18. Starting in verse 21, we read this. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now Peter's question is a natural outworking of the passage right before this. In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus is talking about what you should do if someone sins against you. And so it's only natural that in response to that or flowing from that, Peter would then ask this question. If someone sins against me, how many times should I forgive them? This is a normal question. In fact, I'm guessing it's a question you may have asked before. You've wondered, how many times should I forgive this person? They've wronged me over and over and over again. Should I keep forgiving them? Now, Peter doesn't just ask the question. He also provides a potential answer. He says, should I forgive them up to seven times? I think you need to understand that for Peter to suggest this indicates that he was willing to go beyond what was expected. In the Jewish culture, to forgive someone three times was considered to be generous and forgiving. The fact that Peter goes well beyond that to seven tells us that Peter was willing to go beyond what was expected. But what Jesus says absolutely demolishes Peter's number seven, right? Because he says that you should forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, we need to understand here, Jesus is not saying you should forgive someone 490 times, and on the 491st time, let them have it. That's not what he's saying here. He's using a figure of speech. Seven and ten were perfect or complete numbers in Judaism, and so when he says this, really what he's doing is he's multiplying these numbers that are thought to be completeness to illustrate that there is to be no limit to our forgiveness, that there is to be no end to the amount of times that we forgive. And then he goes on to tell this parable to demonstrate why there should be no limit to our forgiveness. And so let's pick up the parable here starting in verse 23. 
We'll just stop along the way here, making sure that we understand what's being taught. So verse 23 says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So the parable begins like this. A king is settling accounts with his servants. And multiple servants are brought to him. And it just so happens that one of his servants owes him 10,000 talents. Now, to understand this parable and to understand what Jesus is getting at, you probably need to have some notion of how much money or how much debt he owed. I would guess that not many of you speak in terms of talents. I doubt that you go to the bank and ask the teller, how many talents do I have in my account? So I think that we probably need to translate this to money if we're going to understand this. Now, a talent is worth about... 20 years worth of wages for an average worker. One talent is equivalent to 20 years of an average worker's wages. So to put this in terms we can understand, let's just assume here that the average worker earns $30,000 a year. That's probably actually a little low if you look at the statistics. The average median salary in the U.S. is 50000 But just for the sake of being cautious here, not wanting to over-dramatize what's happening here, let's just go with the low figure of $30,000. All right, and so if you take that and you say, well, how much would they make over 20 years? That would be $600,000, right? That's a lot of money, $600,000. That is one talent. This man owes 10,000 talents, 10,000, right? So if you put that into modern U.S. day equivalent, it's around $6 billion. He owes the king $6 billion. Now, immediately, a couple of things probably come to mind. On the one hand, you probably think to yourself, how in the world did he incur a debt of $6 billion? That's a question I've wondered about. It's a question that Jesus does not answer. He does not tell us, right? He's the one who's making up the story. He's the one who's giving us the illustration. And apparently, this is not a concern of his, right? The second part that I wonder about is how will he ever pay this back? And the point of the parable is he will never pay it back. There is nothing he could do to ever pay back this amount of debt. If you're thinking to yourself, well, this seems a little bit ridiculous here that Jesus would say someone owes $6 billion, someone owes 10,000 talents, then you're starting to understand the point of the parable. Because Jesus is deliberately going over the top here to communicate, this man will never, ever, ever pay back what he owes. And the king knows this. And so the king decides that he's just going to count his losses. Verse 25 says this. Verse 25, and since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, again, I think that we need to understand here that for him to be sold into slavery, there is no way that this is going to pay back the debt. A top slave might earn a price of one talent. And so if you're generous and assume that this man gets the top price and you're generous and assume that his wife gets the top price and you're generous and assume that his kids got the top price which is probably being overly generous. The fact is, most people, when they were sold into slavery, only earned a tenth of a talent. But we'll be generous for our estimation here and say that they each earn one talent when they are sold. And let's just say, for the sake of roundness, that they have eight kids. And so ten of them are sold into slavery. And they generate a price of ten talents. Now that's a lot of money. That's 200 years' worth of wages. But the problem is that he still would owe 9,990 talents. Right? Understand, there is no way he's paying this back. This is an astronomical figure. There is no possibility that this servant will ever pay back what he owes. 
Now, the servant's starting to understand the seriousness of what's happening. When the king says that he's going to sell him and his family into slavery, he understands this is not going well. And so he pleads with the king in verse 26. He says this, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now clearly, he is making some empty promises here. There is no way he will ever pay him everything. That's not ever going to happen. And the king knows this too, but he is still moved with compassion. In fact, look at what it says in verse 27. Verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, I think we need to understand how extraordinary this mercy is. Out of compassion, he forgives the man his debt. The man owes him 10,000 talents. To put this in perspective for the time, Simon Kistemaker points out that Herod the Great's annual tax income for his entire kingdom, right? the annual tax revenue for the entire kingdom at the time was 900 talents a year. And so this man owes more than the rest of the kingdom in taxes times 10. There's no way that he will ever pay this back, and yet the king forgives his debt. And in the process, he pays a great cost, right? He relinquishes all of his rights to the money that he's owed. Now, again, even if he knows that he will never get everything back, he could have got some of it back if he would have sold the family into slavery, 200 years worth of wages. But he relinquishes that. He lets it go. He forgives it. He shows mercy. This is an extravagant display of mercy. And if the story ended there, we would probably love the way this story ended. I don't know if you saw in the news this week that there was a policeman in Alabama who was called to the Dollar General store because a woman had stolen eggs. And he went to this store, and he knew the woman. He'd actually been to her house, and he knew how poor she was. He knew how difficult it was for her to feed his children. And so, out of compassion, he decided that he would buy the eggs for her. So he buys the eggs, he gives her a hug, and he sends her on his way. Now, I'm sure that there were some people who were critical of the actions of the policeman, saying that, you know, the lady owed a debt, he shouldn't have paid it for her. I would guess that those same people would also be critical of a baby smiling, right? Like, I mean, there's people who will be critical of anything, But the fact is that for most people, when they see this story, they think, well, that's common sense, right? That's the right thing to do. That's the type of compassion you should have, especially this time of year, right? Now, if you take that story and then you multiply it times billions of cartons of eggs, you're starting to understand what happened here. The king has forgiven something extraordinary. He's forgiven the debt of this man that was great. And again, it cost him something. He had to relinquish everything that he was owed. This is a touching story. This is the type of story that if there was a newscast at the time, they would probably put it on the news, especially now, especially during the holiday season. Oh, this king that we can feel so good about. But here's the thing. Not all of Jesus' parables end with a happy ending. In fact, I was reading an article this week that pointed out most of Jesus' parables do not end with a happy ending. This one is not an exception. If it stopped there, we would all love this story. We'd think, oh, what a great king. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, it takes a bizarre twist. So let's pick up the story again in verse 28. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, again, since we don't use this terminology, it's probably helpful to clarify how much a hundred denarii would be. A denarii or denarius was roughly worth one day's wage. 
And so again, using that same base salary of $30,000, we're talking about roughly $12,000. It's actually a little bit over $11,500, but roughly $12,000. Now, to be fair to the first servant, this is a sizable amount of money. If someone owed you $12,000, you would want them to pay you back. But it's the fact that he'd just been forgiven $6 billion that makes the servant demanding this money seem so ridiculous. Listen, I remember hearing this story when I was growing up. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't understand the point of the parable. I didn't get the heavenly meaning. But I was always offended by this servant. It always bothered me. How in the world could he think that he could be forgiven $6 billion and then choke a man over $12,000? This makes no sense. My justice alarm at the time was going off. This is not right. And the other servant is obviously starting to get the point here that this servant is not going to let it go. And so he starts to plead. You remember the first servant pleaded. Now the second servant is pleading in verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Now the irony in verse 29 is thick. Because this is almost the exact same thing. Almost the exact same thing that the first servant said in verse 26. When he pleads with the king for mercy. And you have to wonder, as the second servant is pleading for mercy, did the first servant think to himself, those words sound familiar? Did he hear the echo of his own voice in this question? Because it's almost exactly the same. Apparently not. Because in verse 30, he keeps pressing his case. Verse 30 says this, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, because of the smallness of the debt, he was not allowed to sell him into slavery. Or else you can have no doubt he probably would have. But because the amount is so small, he's only allowed to throw him into prison. And that's exactly what he does. Now the question is, was he legally allowed to do this? Well, yes. There's nothing wrong legally with what he did here. But again, it's the reality of the debt that he'd been forgiven that makes this story so appalling. Right? It's the first half of the story that makes the second half so shocking. And that reality is not lost on the bystanders. Look at how they respond in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Listen, I get why the bystanders acted this way. Again, this is a story that as you're hearing, and I have no doubt that the original audience who is hearing Jesus tell this story was also troubled by what is happening here. Jesus is telling this story so that we will be troubled. Your sense of justice should be going off. You should be saying to yourself, there is something wrong here. And the reason you should be doing that is because that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. There is something wrong with this picture. And no doubt, the king felt something was wrong too. Look at what he says in verses 32 to 34. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. The king is understandably upset. How could this servant receive such mercy and then go and choke someone for a far less amount? The king seems justified in taking his actions here. Now the fact is that in the ESV, which is the translation I'm reading from, what happens here in verse 34 I think is downplayed. In verse 34, the ESV tells us the king delivers the servant over to the jailers until he should pay the debt. 
Now, one of the obvious implications here is that he's never going to pay the debt. This is one of the things Jesus is trying to communicate. He will never pay this debt. And so he's always going to be with the jailers. But here's how I think the ESV downplays what's happening here. If you have an ESV Bible, chances are there's a footnote in your Bible right beside that that says the Greek word for jailers is actually the word torturer. And indeed, that's the case. The Greek word that's used here is much stronger than jailer. Torture is actually what the Greek word means. And so if you think about what is actually being said, Jesus said that he was delivered over to the torturers until he can pay his debt. With the obvious implication being he will never pay his debt. He will always be with the torturers. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a sobering ending to a parable. In fact, it's one of the endings that kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little bit. And it makes you just a little bit nervous. And if it doesn't, you're probably missing the point of the parable. Because as the next verse makes clear, this is not a parable about kings and servants. This is not a parable about talents and denarii. This is really a parable about us and about whether we're going to forgive. Look at what verse 35 says. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is a parable about forgiveness. It's not a parable about a sermon. It's a parable about forgiveness. Or more accurately, it's a parable, a parable about whether we will forgive. Listen, as I've drilled into you, hopefully over the last three weeks, parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And that's the case here. Jesus is telling an earthly story about a servant and a king to get to the heavenly meaning. Now, part of the heavenly meaning is that we are to forgive. That's obvious. Right? This is the occasion for the parable. Peter's asking, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus gives this parable as an indication of how many times you should forgive. And even the last verse reminds us that a large focus in this parable is on us forgiving. So certainly we need to spend time talking about our need to forgive others. We're meant to be challenged. We're meant to be rebuked by the servant's lack of forgiveness. We are meant to relate to him. He is meant to represent us or at least represent what we ought not to be. But listen, this is really important. It would be really easy for us to focus on the second half of the parable. This idea that we are to forgive others and neglect the first half. And if we neglect the first half of the parable, we will miss the entire point of this entire passage. The first half of the parable, the king's great forgiveness, is crucial if you're going to understand our need for forgiveness. And so maybe to put that not just in earthly terms here, but in terms of the heavenly meaning, we need to first and foremost in this parable recognize the amazing forgiveness that God has given us. This is the linchpin of the passage. If you take out the king's forgiveness, this passage makes zero sense. It makes zero sense. What makes the servant's action so appalling is that he'd been forgiven so much, right? If you take that part out of the equation, then it would make sense why he'd be so frustrated when someone had not paid him back $12,000. But the fact that someone had forgiven him $6 billion, this is what makes all the story make sense. And the point is, if we don't understand the amazing forgiveness that we have received in God, then the command in the second half of the parable for us to forgive others will make zero sense also. Right? If you don't understand the amazing debt that you have been forgiven, you will never be able to forgive others. And so if we're going to talk about this parable, we need to take a step back here and make sure we understand how much we have been forgiven. 
So let me just give you the brief nutshell version of the storyline of the Bible. God is holy, and he is just, and he is not like us. He created all things. He created us for his glory. There is no one like him, and we have rebelled against him. We have rebelled against him. Genesis 3 says that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, and from that point forward, every person who's been born has been born with a sinful nature, with the exception of Christ being born of the Virgin Mary. Every other person has been born with a sinful nature. Psalm 51 says that we are sinful from the time our mother conceived us. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that that's true, just head on down to the church nursery with the two-year-olds. And you will quickly discover that children are born with a sinful nature. Listen, you do not have to teach them to be mean. You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to steal toys. You don't have to teach them to throw fits. They will do it on their own. I have four kids. I know. Maybe it's just my kids. Maybe your kids are all great. No, that's not true. I know that's not true. Because I know how the Bible works. I know how we work. I know that we are all born with sinful natures. Not just our kids. When Tanya was pregnant, we would always say, oh, it's a little bundle of sin growing in her belly. And that's true, right? But it's not just our kids. It's us. We are sinful. And what you need to understand is we're not just sinful by nature. We are sinful by choice. Oh, we choose to sin. We choose. On a regular basis, we choose to be unkind to people. And we choose to lie. And we choose to slander others or gossip. We choose to be greedy. We choose to love stuff more than people. We choose to look the other way when people are in need. We choose to hate. We choose to be prideful. We choose sin. Or to put it another way, we choose not to follow God. Instead, we decide to make ourselves God with a little g. And we decide that we will do what we want to do. Surely I do not need to convince you of this point. Right? You know that the world is sinful because you've watched the news before. You know that you are sinful because you've lived with yourself. Right? You've seen your actions. You know the motives of your heart. We are all sinful. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that puts us in the crosshairs of God's justice. You see, the thing is, God made us for his glory. Instead, we've chosen to live for our own glory. And if God is going to be just, he must punish us for our rebellion. Like any good king throughout history, he must punish rebellion. Listen, we would not respect a judge who simply dismissed every court case that came into the courtroom. We wouldn't say to ourselves, oh, what a good judge. We wouldn't say, oh, they're such a good man or such a good woman. We would never say that. And in the same way, God cannot allow rebellion to go unchecked. The only fitting punishment for our rebellion against him is an everlasting punishment since we've offended an infinite God. And if we're being honest, this is where we come to a fork in the road. Because some in here are saying, I know what you're saying, but it seems a little bit extreme that we would be punished eternally for rebelling against God. It seems a little bit over the top. It seems a little bit harsh. Some of you, if you're being honest, are asking the question, is it really fair that God would punish someone with eternal punishment? Is it really fair that someone would go to hell forever because they've sinned and rebelled against God? Is it really just or equitable that the wages of sin is death? In his book, Follow Me, David Platt answers those questions and others related to God's justice by saying this. 
Such questions, though honest, reveal a fundamental problem with our perspective. We naturally view sin through man-centered eyes. The reason we wonder if these punishments are overly harsh is because we cannot imagine ever responding this way if the offenses were against us. When people disobey us or do something we have asked them not to do, we don't conclude that they should die. Yet the penalty for sin is not determined by our measure of it. Instead, the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. If you sin against a log, you are not very guilty. On the other hand, if you sin against a man or a woman, then you are absolutely guilty. And ultimately, if you sin against an infinitely holy and eternal God, you are infinitely guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. You see, that's the thing. The debt we owe God is infinite. There's nothing we could do to ever make up that gap. No matter how good you are or how many good things you have done, you have still offended an infinite God. And you cannot pay the debt. There is no way to settle the account. Which is exactly why Jesus goes over the top here and saying that this servant owed 10,000 talents. Because he's trying to get us to see we are that man. We are that servant. We are the ones who can never pay back the debt we owe. We are the ones who have an infinite debt that cannot be paid. And as amazing as it is that this 10,000 talent debt is forgiven, that is nothing compared to the forgiveness that we have received. Because God in his mercy sent his son who is both fully God and fully man, who could live a life that we couldn't live and could take the punishment that we couldn't take, the eternal punishment. He paid the debt that we were to pay. And amazingly enough, and this is the amazing part, not only did he take our account from six billion in debt to zero, he then gave us all of his treasures. It's not just that he took our sin, it's also that he gave us his righteousness. And so our bank account isn't back to neutral. It's that we've been given the inheritance of Christ. Listen, we can never underestimate the debt that we owed God and how much it cost God to remove that debt. God sent His Son to pay the punishment for us. I think it was Martin Luther who first said, we all carry His very nails in our pocket. It was our sin that sent Him to the cross. And because of what Jesus did, our slate has been wiped clean. We are now credited with Christ's perfection. This is amazing grace. This is incredible forgiveness. It's even more incredible than the servant being forgiven 10,000 talents. That's the point. It's the point of the parable. And in light of that reality, the second half of the parable makes sense. Right? The second half makes sense. In light of the forgiveness we have received, we are to forgive. This is where the unforgiving servant fell short. He received gladly the mercy and forgiveness of the king, but he refused to give that mercy and forgiveness to other people. And this is in the end why we find him in the grip of the tortures, because he refused to show the same mercy that he had just received. Verse 35 is haunting. It's haunting because of what Jesus says. Look one more time at verse 35 of Matthew 18. He says this, So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Keep in mind, he's talking about being tortured forever. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, let's be clear here. Salvation is nothing you can earn. It's not something you earn by forgiving other people. Forgiving others is not a component or a condition for receiving forgiveness. 
but it will be an outworking or a result of receiving forgiveness. In other words, you don't have to forgive in order to receive God's forgiveness. But if you are forgiven by God, you will want to forgive others because you understand the magnitude. Right? You understand the magnitude of the forgiveness you have received. Listen, it's similar to the parable, right? The man wasn't required to not throw the man in jail, but in light of the fact that he'd been given, forgiven $6 billion, it's only natural that he would forgive the man the debt that was owed to him. And the same is true for us. And the reason why is because while it's true, the hurts we may experience from others are real, they are nothing in comparison to our sin against God. In this parable, the debt that the second servant owed the first was a real debt. But it was nothing in comparison to the first. The same is true for us. The amount of hurt we receive is real. Listen, it's real. But it's nothing in comparison to how much we have sinned against God. I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's a phrase worth repeating. We are first sinners and second sinned against. We are first sinners and second sinned against. Our sin against God is far greater than anyone will ever sin against us. And that's why we forgive. Now, let me acknowledge something here. It's much easier for me to say that we should just forgive than it is to actually do it. It's much easier for me to say we should forgive as Christ has forgiven us, but it's an entirely different thing to actually forgive. Listen, if someone bumps into you on a crowded street, it's easy to forgive that person, right? But what about if a business partner steals all your money? How do you forgive that person? Or how do you forgive a spouse that cheated on you? Or how do you forgive someone who abused you? Or how do you forgive someone who's hurt your kids? That's when things get difficult. Russell Moore, writing about forgiveness, says this, the most difficult math problem in the universe, it turns out, is 70 times 7. Perhaps the hardest thing to do in the Christian life is to forgive someone who has hurt you, often badly. I would venture to say that some of you today could testify to that reality. You know how hard it is to forgive. Listen, some of you were physically or even sexually abused by a relative growing up. Some of you have had to deal with the reality of a cheating spouse. Some of you, if not physically abused by your parents, were emotionally and verbally abused by your parents. Some of you have been betrayed by a best friend in ways that you never thought possible. Others of you were betrayed by a business partner that cost you everything, including your money and your reputation. Some of you are dealing with the reality that someone has hurt your kids at some point, and you're trying to figure out, how do I forgive that person? Others of you are living in fractured marriages, maybe not because of abuse, but just because of cold indifference or harsh things that have been said over and over and over again. I'm not saying those things, by the way, because I have some inside information or because I'm betraying some counseling. It's just because I've been around people long enough to know that our hurts are real. And I know in a group this size, there are people probably dealing with every single one of the things that I mentioned. Hopefully not all of them at the same time, but everyone, someone in this room, everyone is dealing probably with at least one of those things. And I would guess that multiple people are dealing with lots of them. Because the pain we face is real. And the question is, how do we forgive people when those types of things happen? Listen, those are really difficult questions. But there's too much at stake not to address those questions. 
Let me continue with that quote from Russell Moore. Again, he says, Perhaps the hardest thing to do in the Christian life is to forgive someone who's hurt you often badly. But Jesus says the alternative to forgiving one's enemies is hell. The alternative to forgiving one's enemies is hell. And it's true, I think, by the way. I think it's implied here in Matthew 18. I think it's explicitly stated in Matthew 6 when Jesus says, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If that's true, then clearly the stakes could not be higher. Right? When we're talking about forgiveness, the stakes could not be higher if the alternative is either we forgive or we are headed to hell. So in light of what's at stake here, let me just offer up a few principles as it relates to forgiveness. Now, let me say this. Um, there are some really helpful articles and books out there about forgiveness, and I know that for some of you, this is an issue that has been really hard. And so if there's some way that over the course of the next week I can help as you just process something that you're trying to work through, I'd be happy to point you to some of those articles or some of the books that I was reading this week in preparation for this message. In fact, these principles I'm going to derive from those articles, in particular the one by Russell Moore that I've already quoted, another one by Justin Taylor. All right, so let me just offer three principles here. The first is this, and this is what we've been talking about already. The foundation for forgiving others is found in understanding the forgiveness we have in Christ. This is the point of the parable. This is the point of the parable. The reason why the servant's actions are so deplorable is because he seems to completely forget how much he's been forgiven. The same is true for us. If we show an inability to forgive, I think it indicates that we don't actually understand the forgiveness that we have in Christ. If we are unable to forgive others, it shows that we don't understand the mercy that God has shown us. It shows that we don't understand the nature of our sin. Again, we all carry his nails in our pocket. And so I think this has a couple of implications. To truly forgive others, you must know Christ. I think in order to have this type of forgiveness, where you can truly say, I forgive that person, I think that only comes when you know Christ. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you have to start there. You have to start there. You have to start by understanding that there's a forgiveness that's offered to you. That all of the rebellion that I was talking about earlier, all of the punishment for rebellion that I mentioned earlier, this is your fate unless you repent of your sin and trust Christ. And so I'd say this, if we're going to forgive, it starts with understanding the forgiveness we have. And so what that means is this, if you are a Christian and you are struggling to forgive, the antidote is not to try harder. The antidote is not to forget or to try to forget what someone has done to hurt you. The solution is to remember the gospel. I think sometimes we think that forgiveness is trying to forget what's happened, but that doesn't work. If you've ever tried to forgive in that way, it just doesn't work, right? The antidote to Bitterness, the antidote to an unforgiving heart, is not forgetting what's happened. Rather, it's remembering what Jesus has done. This is the foundation for forgiveness. In this parable, that was the pathway out for the servant. The pathway out was not simply to forget the debt that the other person owed him. No, the pathway out was to remember how much he'd been forgiven. When we talk about forgiveness, we're not denying that people cause us real pain. Again, even in this parable, the debt the second servant owed the first was real and it was significant. But it's in comparison, it's in comparison to the forgiveness forgiveness we've received that we're able to forgive. Listen, it's not that offenses are easy to forgive. It's that Christ's forgiveness is so great that it overwhelms our sense that we should not forgive others. 
If you're struggling to forgive others, ultimately it's an issue of not understanding what Christ has done for you. Because the gap between the forgiveness we have received and the forgiveness we have to offer others is large. It's infinite. Just like the gap between what the first servant owed and what the second servant owed was astronomical. The key to forgiveness starts by looking at the cross. So that's the first principle. The second principle is this. Forgiveness does not mean that we allow injustice to stand or make it easy for the offender to hurt us again. This is one of the main issues I think we have with forgiveness. We feel like it means that we've just allowed just injustice to prevail. Or we just allow people to keep on going doing sinful things. Right, so let me give you a terrible example. Let's say that someone abuses your kid. Does that mean you just forgive the person and pretend as if it never happened? Maybe yes to the first part that you forgive, but I don't think the answer is yes to the second part. I don't think that's the case at all, that you just forget what's happening. You pretend as if nothing ever did happen. Forgiveness does not mean that we abandon all earthly justice. And also, more importantly, when we choose to forgive, we are entrusting ourselves to the judgment of God. Let me quote again one more time from Russell Moore. He says, when we forgive, we are confessing that vengeance is God's. We don't need to exact justice from a fellow believer because justice has already fallen at the cross. We don't need to exact vengeance from an unbeliever because we know the sin against us will be judged in hell or more hopefully when the offender unites himself to the one who is the propitiation for our sins. Listen, and this is important. Forgiveness is not ignoring justice. Forgiveness is not forgetting that something happened. It's not pretending that something wasn't painful when it was. Forgiveness means that you entrust yourself to the judgment of God. And you entrust that he will make all things right. Here's the third principle. And this is the one that I debated the most whether to include. But I think think it needs to be said. Forgiveness is conditional. And the condition is repentance. Think about God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is freely offered to all. But it's not freely given to all. It's freely offered to all, but not freely given to all. It's only given to those who will repent. And I think the same is true for our, for, forgi- for our forgiveness. I think we need to be ready to forgive all people, and we need to have an attitude of forgiveness for all people. We can only forgive those who've repented. What's required of us in this passage, as John Calvin would say, is that we remove all hatred from our heart, and we're ready to forgive. I'm not talking about a loophole here. I'm not talking about a loophole saying, we don't have to forgive them this, they repent. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you have to have an attitude of repentance. You have to remove all hatred and love the offender. And you need to be ready to forgive. But I think you can't forgive unless a person is actually repentant. And I think that matters because of the way we talk about forgiveness sometimes. There is a condition to forgiveness, and that condition is repentance. Now, that said, all of this is difficult. Right? This is difficult. There's a reason why Jesus had to preach a parable like this. Because he knew it would be hard. But he also knew it was really important. I don't think it's too much to say that our, our, a measure of our understanding of the gospel is how much we're able to forgive. And if you're unwilling or unable to forgive, it shows that either A, you don't know the gospel, or B, there's some deficiencies in your understanding. Only when you understand what Christ has done can you truly forgive. And that's actually the reason why I love the story of Ronnie and Anita Smith that I shared at first. 
When I was reading the letter earlier, I purposely left out the most important part. But it's that part of the letter that makes the letter make the entire sense, or makes the letter make sense. So let me pick up from the line where she says, to his attackers, I love you and I forgive you. She then goes on to say, how could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge. Jesus sacrificed his life out of love for the very people who killed him, as well as for us today. His death and resurrection opened the door for us to walk on the straight path to God in peace and forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did, Ronnie is with Jesus in paradise now. Jesus did not come only to take us to paradise when we die, but also to bring peace and healing on this earth. Ronnie loved you because God loves you. Ronnie loved you because God loved him. Not because Ronnie was so great, but because God is so great. I hear people speaking with hate, anger, and blame over Ronnie's death, but that's not what Ronnie would want. Ronnie would want his death to be an opportunity for us to show one another love and forgiveness because that's what God has shown us. Now, setting aside the discussion here of whether you can actually forgive an unrepentant person, I think we understand what's happening in this letter is that Anita Smith is saying, I've chosen not to hate, and instead I've chosen to love. And the reason why I've chosen to love, the reason why I'm ready to forgive, is because I understand, just like my husband did, what Jesus did on the cross. That's what's happening in this letter. Listen, if we understand the forgiveness we have in Christ, we will forgive others. If we don't forgive, we don't understand the gospel. It's as simple as that, and it's as sobering as that. We forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for forgiving us. Thank you for the great mercy you have shown us. May our mercy and compassion for others be motivated and fueled by your mercy and forgiveness for us. God, help us to be people who love the gospel and understand the gospel enough to know that we can be gracious and merciful to others because you were so gracious and merciful to us. Help us understand this passage. Help us to live it out. Help us to understand the gospel so that we are free to forgive others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.